It truly is good to be with you this morning, and I, I want to say that uh, I'm very pleased to see each and every one of your faces. It brings me much, much joy to be gathered with you this morning. And, uh, and while you're here and you're listening, I want to just take a moment and uh, reminisce about some things that were special to me when I was a child. One of the things that was probably most special to me, maybe top 10, was, and this is weird, but highlights. Does anybody remember highlights? Going to the mail. Uh, in my family, there was quite a few of us, and so we would snoop through the mail and check and see if it was bills or some other stuff that wasn't colorful. We would just leave it in there, and mom would have to get it or send somebody later. But if there was a highlight in there, we would snag it out. Oftentimes, we'd snag it out, and other bills and things would fall onto the ground. And with our excitement, we would leave them there and move on. But when we would dig through the highlights, we wanted to be the first ones to, to have a chance to find the missing items and to do the crossword puzzles. And we wanted to be the, the first to get to the compare and contrast, to see the two pictures that would say what's different. So as we'd look through those, and it would sharpen our abilities to investigate to be observant. And this morning, I hope for your case, for your sake, that, that you have enjoyed some time in the Highlights magazine and that you have sharpened your abilities to see what is different. Although I don't think it will be that difficult this morning. We will be comparing two things. This morning, we're going to compare a false gospel and a real gospel. I should have said it other. Today, today we'll compare the true gospel with false gospel. Gospels, And I know that gets so many of you so excited as you consider, you know that you're going to find the differences the quickest, and so that's going to be great. Uh, we'll see. May the best man win. Uh, but it's so important that we are able to investigate and to see differences in all of life, but especially as it comes to the area of theology. The great Baptist pastor Spurgeon He allowed that the best way to show a man that his walking stick was crooked was to set next to his bent walking stick a straight one. He need not point out the difference. The difference will speak for itself because one shines better and truer even than the rest. So I believe that will be the case. I think Paul knew that as he addresses the churches that were found in Galatia, which is modern-day Turkey. He writes a letter to them because he's heard some bad news. You see, Paul had spent some time church planting, traveling through this area of Galatia. And as he, as he went through there, he preached the gospel. And as, when the gospel is preached, God does a work. The Spirit of God draws men to himself, and local churches are born. No doubt this has taken place in Galatia. And Paul would preach this gospel, and he would nurture these young converts in the faith with the truths of the gospel that we hold so dearly. And as he, was, as he was called, he would go to another area. Feeling the same feeling maybe that you felt as you've left siblings, children even. Desire to, to nurture them and to see them grow in the Lord and in their faith. Paul's experienced that. As he hears a little bit of word back as to how they're doing, it's not good news. Something's gone awry. Something's changed. False teachers have snuck into Galatia. They've even used his own name and the names of the apostles that were in Jerusalem and said this new doctrine, this additional piece, that's not what Paul shared. It's it's an add-on to that. You need to know. You need to observe. These, These men were called the Judaizers. They were forcing the law 
on the Christians that were in the churches there in Galatia. So Paul decides it's time for him to write a letter. He's not able to make it there, and so he's, he sits down and he begins to pen the letter, the letter to the Galatians. And as we look at chapter 1, that's all we'll really have time for this morning. As we look at chapter 1, I think we're going to realize this. This is going to be the one takeaway. And I want to say this too. This is, this is a heavy thing to say, but I, I think it's true. This is one of the most serious sermons, messages, passages that we will look at as a church, that we have looked at as a church. See, we have to have clarity as it relates to the gospel. This is our foundation. This is what makes us a church. This is our only hope. And if we get this wrong, we are, a, we are miserable. You see, we can mess up setup. We can mess up uh, how we organize the chairs. We can mess up whether we wear the right pieces of clothing or not. We can, all these things can go awry. But what, what cannot go messed up? What cannot go south? is our understanding of the gospel. And so let me say this. This is our main point, our main takeaway, that as your pastor, I want you to grip onto and to hide in your heart. It's this truth, that there is a constant tendency in all of us to distort the true gospel, thereby exchanging good news for bad news. I want to say that again. There's a constant tendency in all of us to distort the true gospel, thereby exchanging good news for bad news. So we'll unpack that statement as we walk through the scriptures this morning. If you've got your, your copy of God's word, I'm going to invite you to, to turn to Galatians chapter 1, and we'll read the first 10 verses there in that letter. Paul writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, And all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. This is the to, from section of the letter. And he gets into the greeting here, the the beginning of the letter in verse 3. He says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present age, from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever." And ever, amen. Verse 6, he says, I'm astonished you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who are troubling you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you have received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be the servant of Christ. I ask God to bless the reading of his word. Let's go with, uh, go with me to the Lord in prayer. God, these are your words for us this morning. We trust that. And in some small way, we feel the weight, the truths of this passage. So again, reverently, fervently, we ask that you would enlighten us, that you would illuminate us, that you would help us to see into our very hearts, the hearts of our friends, the hearts of our brothers and sisters and of our spouses, 
We would draw out from there the misunderstandings, the false gospels, the idolatry and the self-righteousness, and that we would lay it on your altar, that we would turn from it, and that again we would glorify you and we would celebrate the true gospel, the good news. And Jesus, we know there's only one. We thank you for it. It's in your name we pray. So after Paul's usual introduction, the to and the from section, he, he always, uh, in all of his letters, he rolls into a brief explanation of the gospel. And he does that in this letter. And I, I believe that what he's doing in that moment, he's always laying that straight walking stick out next to the bent walking sticks. Because Paul is wise enough to know that statement that I shared with you a moment ago, that there's always this drawl, there's always this bend within us within us as a church and within us individually that will draw us away from the truths of the gospel. And so Paul wants to call us again to the very truth. And he lays it down. So this morning as we look at this, we'll recognize first the true gospel and then we'll walk on and ask the Spirit of God to show us false gospels that are in our lives. And so first, let's look at true gospel. What is the true gospel? So verses 3 through 5, we'll, we'll kind of take a moment and look through that. So let's start with verse 3. Paul says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace. Grace is God's goodness toward those who deserve only punishment. Grace is God's goodness to those who deserve only punishment. If you've received anything other than punishment from God then you have received grace. And Paul is reminding them, even unbelievers this morning have in some way received a grace from God that they've experienced anything pleasant in life. That's the truth of all of us. It's any goodness extended to us as humans is the grace of God. He reminds the Galatians thing about that and he follows up this, this statement, quick statement of grace with peace. Peace is rest. It's reunion with God. It's it's life as it should be. And in those two words, grace and peace, Paul calls the the Galatians back to the true gospel. And it reminds them of reunion with God is only possible through the grace of God. They deserved God's punishment and instead they received peace. Imagine your house being on fire and you, you strive with everything in you to, to put that fire out, but you're unable to do it. Somebody comes along and they put the fire out. What more work is there to do? The house isn't burnt down. It's been saved. And so now what do you do? You don't continue to try to put the fire out. You don't wrestle with the, the evil that's already been extinguished. What do you do? Well, you celebrate your hero. That's what Paul wants to remind the the Galatians about. What once had plagued them has been removed. The punishment that they deserved had been taken away. And now they were able to experience a peace with God. I want to point something else out here. It says there that this is from... God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That struck me this week because so often when we think about the Trinity, when we think about God the Father, when we think about uh, Christ the Son, what do we think? Jesus the Son, we think, well, God was angry with mankind. 
God was so angry that he decided to destroy his creation. And yet Jesus comes up with this idea and he comes to the Father and he says, no, let me take the punishment. And that's, that's a lie. That's not how it happened. You see, God in his mercy, God the Father, anytime you see in the New Testament God by itself, it's typically referring to God the Father. Not always, but most of the time. It was God the Father. He planned it. He willed it. And he sent the Son. And the, the Son submits to this plan. The Son gladly accepts the role of Redeemer. And in unity of the Trinity, the gospel was planned and enacted. There was none reluctant. There was none dissenting. In unity together, they enact this plan of salvation. And so grace and peace available for the church at, churches at Galatia and from the Father and from the Son. In verse 4 it says, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. The language there is, when it says the present evil age, it makes me think of Genesis chapter 6 verse 5. The Bible says this, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. And this age is the presence of only evil continually. We live in a day just the same. As in the days of Noah, as in the days of, of Jesus and of Paul, and of us, only evil continually. On repeat, played across the loudspeakers in Paul's day and in ours is this call, a covert call, but there, and it's too idolatry. It's a call to pleasure and happiness. It's a, it's a call to self-sufficiency. It's a licentious lullaby that draws us into a dangerous place and it leaves us in a state of powerlessness. It leads us to damnation. And it promises and it never delivers. One of the most unsettling scenes in all of Disney history for me is when Pinocchio finds himself on Pleasure Island. Maybe you can remember that scene. I can remember that time. I still get the willies as I think of it. That place, that, that, that island was known as Funland. It was known as Playtime Land. And it was disguised as a haven of freedom for boys and girls that were being rebellious, that wanted to just get their wild oats sown and have fun. But it was a place full of of victims, as unsuspecting visitors. It appeared to just be a fantastic place, a place where you could just relax and do whatever you want with no consequences. However, its entire idea, the whole premise behind that place was to ensnare children into slavery. And they were pleased to go. And initially they were pleased to stay. Before it was too late, they were overtaken. They were overcome. And in the darkness, they're bound. 
And this, this is what Paul is alluding to when he says the present evil age. And church, I fear that many of us don't consider this time the present evil age. And even that should ring a bell as you consider that you're not concerned. Just as Pinocchio, enjoying his, his, the good time. We have a strong rebellious desire in us to wallow in this present evil age. And we're, we're happy, many of us, oftentimes, we're happy to be here. And unbeknownst to us, slavery and certain death await. So it's true of Galatia. The church is there. It is true of us this morning. This is what God the Father has sent the Son to deliver the saints at Galatia from. I want you to think about that. Really rest in it. That's the gospel. Maybe this morning you think, well, we hear this all the time. Well, what else is there to hear? What other good news would we proclaim this morning as saints of God that we have been rescued from this present evil age, been rescued from destruction, even when, it was, when we weren't even desiring it, when we were running headlong into danger, into sin. God sent his son to deliver us, even while we were yet sinners. And he raises us up from that miry clay. And here's the kicker. All this was done for us while we didn't even know what was happening. And while we were running from our Lord, he rescued us. It's not that we wanted off the island. We weren't even aware at that point of what was taking place. But Christ rescued us. He delivered us. That's the plan of God. That's, that's the good news. We didn't even ask for it. And this is a beautiful thing. So Paul says, he reminds them of the grace they received, of the peace that is now afforded them. And how it was God the Father and God the Son who devised this plan and enacted it along with the Spirit of God, unity and trinity. They enacted the gospel, and it was good news to the church at Galatia at one point. But now, something's changed. Something has shifted. Instead of Jesus being the emphasis, now it was the law. Instead of faith being the access, it was quickly becoming works. Though some were trying to add to the gospel, Paul wouldn't allow it. So he writes this letter. In Acts chapter 16, Paul declares to the Philippian jailer, a Gentile, who says, what must I do to be saved? He says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And yet the the Judaizers were adding to the law of Moses. And at the end of the day, when we add to the gospel, when we add to the good news, remember, it becomes bad news becomes bad news and we'll unpack that in just a minute there's always been this desire in mankind to earn salvation we've always wanted to contribute in some way but not to help out like a young son would his father in far less innocent way we want to help out we want to contribute to our own salvation because it brings us a sense of glory a sense of earned righteousness Paul clearly states in the book of Ephesians that salvation is by grace through faith. Pastor Tim read that earlier this morning. 
It's by grace through faith. It's not of ourselves. It's a gift. It's not by works lest any man should boast. It's not by our works. It's not by our merit. Everything in salvation is due to the grace of God. All of these truths that that Paul unpacks there quickly in verses 3 and in 4 lead us to verse 5. To whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. What more can be said? What more should be said about the gospel? That God the Father is doing this work through God the Son. He says, to him be glory forever. Forever and ever we sang. We will sing his praise. It's a beautiful thing to, to think that we've already begun what we will do for eternity as saints of God. We've already begun to sing the praise. We've already begun to sing the glory of God. And I hope this story never gets old to you. I hope as a church, the, the, the truths, the good news of the gospel will never wear out. We'll always celebrate the work that God has done for us. During the time that I was in Israel, I, we, we, ran, we made friends with a man by the name of Ron. And Ron is a Jew does not believe in Jesus as the Messiah. But one thing that he would remind us of on a regular basis, the call throughout the Old Testament scriptures, was to remember the works of God and to tell it to your children. So this morning, we're going to do that. Not just to our children, but to each other. We want to recount what God has done. We want to remember what he's done for us, and we want to tell it to our children. Oftentimes when I get together with brothers and sisters, we want to tell stories about uh, how this was stolen or how this person fought this person or how this, just fun, glorious stories of heroes and damsels in distress. And though we've heard the stories a thousand times when we get together, we still want to pull them out and we still want to tell them. Even if it's the same person that's told it a thousand times, tell it a thousand and one because we love to hear that story. No doubt you're like that when you get together with your family or when you get together with your friends. And as saints of God, when we gather together, we want to remember together what he has done for us in the past and we want to tell it to our children. We want to celebrate that this morning. So may that echo in your heart. Verse number five, to, to him, to whom be glory forever and ever. Forever and ever. Church, this is the true gospel. It's what Paul preached at first to the church at Galatia. To the churches at Galatia, I should say. So Paul would say, hey, to, from, at the beginning of his letter. He would roll into some praise and exposition of the gospel. And then typically, he would say some type of prayer of thanksgiving immediately after that. And what's striking about the the letter to the churches at Galatia is that it's missing. There's no thankfulness in Paul's heart toward the church there, toward their faithfulness. It's not. It goes to show the seriousness of Paul's occasion in writing this letter. He jumps right into business. In verse number six, he begins to expose the false gospel. And so six through nine, we'll walk through that just for a moment. Verse number six, it says, I'm astonished, floored, that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, 
But there are some of you, some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we have preached to you, let him be accursed. The second gospel Paul is referring to is for sure a different gospel. As a matter of fact, it's not a gospel at all. But you have to know that it was similar to the gospel that Paul had preached. It, it, was, it was a gospel that made much of Jesus, that pointed to the work of Christ on the cross and to faith even. But it alluded to the fact that Jesus wasn't enough. That salvation, that peace with God, was not yours to be realized until you were circumcised and unless you obeyed certain aspects of the law of Moses. So it was very similar and yet very different at the same time. The echoes of this different gospel can still be heard today, though. The details, yes, they've been changed. But the heart of the matter is the same. That faith in Christ, though necessary, is insufficient. The echo is here today. That faith in Christ, yes, it's necessary, but it is not sufficient. And instead, obedience to God's law, baptism, a life stamped by good works, membership of a particular church with a certain tradition, diligent efforts to get in to and keep yourself on God's good graces, all of these were marks similar to circumcision that we see here even today. In our own traditions, in our own city. In some ways, in many ways, they're held to be just as important as salva- in salvation as faith in Jesus. And you might say this morning, well, there's none of that in my life. You might say, Josh, I understand that we're going to be talking about the gospel this morning. And let's do that and let's celebrate that. But there's no false gospel in my life. I hope that that's the case. I hope that that's true. But even even I, as I look through this passage this morning, as I look through it this week, the Lord began to do a work in my heart and to reveal that there are hints of the false gospel that are remnant in my own heart. And so the Spirit of God and, and the Word of God has worked in my heart this week as He's rooted out Continue to sanctify me and to purify my understanding of the gospel. I hope that that's true of you this morning. And so I I offer that to you this morning humbly, asking that you too would ask the Lord to search your own heart and to reveal any secret or hidden idolatry or heretical theology practice that you are holding on to this morning. That is my prayer So they were, whole, they were adding to the gospel. And I love how Paul puts it. He says, not, not that there is another gospel. And you have to understand what he's saying there. He says, there's no other gospel. There's no other. Gospel means good news. There's no other good news. You imagine being on Pleasure Island, being ensnared there. Or maybe you could take a moment and with reverence remember The plight of the Jews in the 1940s. So many in concentration camps 
And you imagine the hopelessness that they experienced in that time. Many never making it out alive, never seeing their family again, never tasting freedom or experiencing, never to experience it again. There wasn't much good news to be had in those days and in those camps. There was one good news, and that was this. It's over, and you're now free. You can go home. That's good news. And everything else is bad news. As the sun would rise another day, it would be bad news. As more work was found to be done, as news would scatter throughout the camp of another one dead, another one gone, another battle lost, another shipment of, of, of human beings coming into that camp. All bad news. One good news. Freedom. Peace. Grace. So Paul says there's no other good news. To the Christian this morning, to the unbeliever even, there's no other good news but that Christ has come and afforded a way for us to be rescued and delivered from this present evil age. And Paul is saying that some rendition or version of the gospel is really a perversion of the gospel and it's not good news at all. Something struck me this week as I looked at verse 6. It said, deserting him. I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him. Paul's saying, you're, you've not deserted the gospel. You've not deserted a thing. You've deserted a person. You've rejected a person. So to, retract, to reject the true gospel is to reject the true God. And it's impossible to forsake the gospel without forsaking God. And you need to know that. The Greek word behind deserting signifies to transfer one's allegiance. It's used of soldiers who would desert their company. Men who would change sides in politics or philosophy. They were, this is the same as turncoat. Imagine a ship's captain finding out that you've gone overboard and turning this large Navy vessel around, returning to you, he himself coming from his quarters down, extending his own hand in your direction, pulling you up from the sea that would kill you, gives you clean, dry uniform, and in turn, you jump from the ship an attempt to swim to the destination. This is what's taking place. It's a slap in the face. The Galatians have received the gospel. Paul says that they began by the Spirit and now they try to complete it in the flesh. Chapter 3. They began in one way and they try to end in another way. They received the, that, the strong arm of the Lord. They received that grace. They received that peace. And then they jump out and try to attempt to contribute and to finish the work that Christ had begun as if he needed help in finishing the work. And this type of action in the Galatian churches, it was caused by false doctrine being, being uh, espoused by false teachers, the Judaizers, as I mentioned a moment ago. Perverting, distorting the gospel, as it says. That word distorting, it actually could be translated reversing 
the gospel. Reversing the gospel. I, I thought about this this week. It's a little bit corny, but follow me. Humor me. Think of the word revere. R-E-V-E-R-E. I think I spelled that correctly. If I didn't, the whole thing falls apart. Just follow along. Think of revere, the word revere. If we were to add one single little letter to that, if we were to add the letter S into revere, we we revere the Lord. If we were to add an S on there, we could quickly and easily change it from revere to reverse. One simple addition completely changes the meaning of the, of the word. And it's not that powerful of an illustration, and it has problems, but the point is this, that when we add to the gospel one single tiny little thing, it doesn't just add to, but it completely reverses. It completely changes it from something it wasn't meant to, from something it was meant to be to something completely different. And instead of saving, it, it, it damns. Instead of bringing hope, it brings despair. And this is what any distortion to the gospel does, any at all. False gospels are a full rejection of God. Anytime we add anything to the work of Christ, it is a full rejection of Christ. And Paul says, I'm astonished that you would so quickly abandon that, that you would so quickly move from him who saved you. And he says, let them be accursed. It's that word anathema. It's used in the, in, in the Old Testament, in the, in the Greek Septuagint. It's, it's used of um, the, the, those things in, in Canaan that were under the divine curse and were devoted to destruction. Paul says it's, it's anathema. It's absent from God and the curse of God is upon it. And some of you might say, well, that's, 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 that's crazy language. He's angry. He's frustrated. Uh, you, you better believe that he is. This is a matter of life and death. You say that's heavy language to use against guys who are confused. Here's the, here's the point. It's the natural progression. If you have a false gospel that you hold to, it ultimately ends in death. It, it ends in destruction. It ends in slavery. And so Paul is passionately, with love, with the heart of a pastor, is reaching out to these folks and he's warning them. And he warns them about teachers without taking notes write that down the teachers without in Paul's day again it was the Judaizers they were the circumcision party Acts chapter 15 but some men came down from Judea and they were teaching the brothers unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses you cannot be saved this is what they were saying unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses you cannot receive the peace of God they're adding to and that wasn't all they were doing and there were other factions They didn't deny that you must believe in Jesus for salvation, but they were adding to it as if you must finish Christ's unfinished work. It's blasphemy. He warns them about these false teachers, and I think there's so much for us to gain. I'm going to pull two things out for our church today. Two quick notes as it relates to false teachers, as it relates to teachers, period. You think in the future as we install Elders, as God provides us and blesses us with, with elders who will provide care and oversight for this body. As, as God raises up deacons, we've talked about this quarter, about God raising up deacons in this church, in this body, 
Men who will teach, who will lead, who will protect the, the, the truths of the gospel. I want you to think of two things. Number one, if, if you're to be a leader in the church, you must teach the true gospel. You must know and teach the true gospel. This is why it's such a big deal for us. Even in membership, that we understand, that we see fruit of the true gospel in the lives of each of us, and especially in those who will teach. Especially in those who will teach. Uh, Paul says in another, another book that he wrote, uh, Romans chapter 16, verses 17 and 18, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been told. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. He says, avoid them. Church, you're not to endure false teaching. You're not to endure a a, a gospel that is preached contrary to what you've read in this book. Two chief characteristics of the false teachers were that they were troubling the church and that they were changing the gospel. And you need to know that those two things go hand in hand. Any time in the history of the church that the gospel was distorted, the church was struggling. Any time. They go in hand in hand. And so it's so important that we as Christians, as we as brothers and sisters, be on guard with those who will teach us that they will teach the truths of the scripture and nothing else, that they will not add to it, though they be an angel or Paul himself, it doesn't matter. Church, the best way to serve the church is to believe and to preach the gospel, each and every one of us. The best way to serve the church, you say, I want to be a part, I want to serve in this body, I want to contribute, I want to teach, I want to lead, I want to do whatever I can, I'll, I'll clean up stalls, whatever. The best way, Listen, as your pastor, the best way that you can serve this body is to believe and preach the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Another point as we think of leadership within the church that I, I, we, we can't leave, we've got to grab here, is that a good leader in the church is one that cannot be bought. A good leader in the church cannot be bought. Look at verse number 10 in this chapter, chapter 1. Paul says of himself, Am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? You judge. Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I could not be, I would not be the servant of Christ. Paul's getting flack from all different directions. Oh, you're lowering the bar for the Gentiles. That's what you're doing. You just want, you want to be the Savior in the eyes of the Gentiles. And Paul says, nothing could be further from the truth. That's not true. I'm not trying to, to please man. I'm trying to please God. And this point there at the end, I would, if I was trying to please man, he says, I, I couldn't be the servant of Christ. He's un, he'd be unfit, he says. And this is a big one. So as you... Submit yourself to the leaders within the church as we raise up, as we pray that God would raise up, rather, leaders and teachers and pastors and elders and deacons within the body here. Remember that we would install men who could not be bought, not by friendship, not by flattery, not with money, but that would, as Paul say, I, I am a servant of Christ, and that is all. These are important. Paul says, 
I, I can't be bought. I'm not for sale. Leaders in the church should be the same. And this is the kind of man that we need. Leading in our homes, in our D groups, in our life groups, and from this pulpit. Loving the gospel, holding true to that, and not able to be bought. This, this is what this passage speaks to in regards to leadership. But we've looked at teachers without. Teachers without. There's, I told you to, to write that one down because there's a teacher without, but then there's also a teacher within. It, it's helpful for us to think about our culture globally, those who espouse different types of heresy, those who, who teach a, a, a doctrine that is another gospel or bad news. Similar to our gospel, but adding to it, and therefore not a gospel at all, but heresy and damnable. It's helpful for us to, to be on guard on the outside, and we look online, we look uh, in, on the TVs for guys in fancy suits with jets, and we think, maybe those guys are the bad guys. Maybe that's the one that's teaching false teaching, and maybe that's true, but it's not just there. It could be on a stage similar to this one. It may never be said of this church, but, but we have to be on guard it's helpful for us to look outside of ourselves, but we can't stop there. We also have to look within ourselves. Look at verse number nine. It says, as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one that you have received, let him be accursed. This warning goes out to you this morning individually because you preach a gospel this morning. Each of you preach a gospel. So this warning it applies to you, anyone. You regularly preach. Now, you may not do just as I or Pastor Tim or some other, but you regularly preach. You preach in your neighborhood. You preach in your home. And Saint, listen, you preach in your head on a daily basis. What gospel are you preaching? What gospel is on repeat in your mind on a daily basis? There is a teacher within, and this warning applies to you, and you've got to be wary. In, false, in Paul's day, the false gospel, the, those peddlers, those teachers, they would preach a gospel of circumcision and of festivals and of following the law of Moses, and that's not the temptation this morning. I'm sure that no man here this morning says, I want to be a part of that party. I want to join that. I want to add that type of righteousness. Or some archaic and outdated festival. That's not our temptation this morning. And yet there are temptations for us. Robert Thune is so helpful for us. And, and Will Walker as well. And as they co-authored a book entitled, a little booklet or a guide. Um, entitled A Gospel-Centered Life. It's a wildly powerful book. So relevant to us this morning. As they, they point out in our culture some of the biggest substitutes for circumcision in our day. And we're not going to run out and make that the big deal, but we'll make other things big deals. I'm going to read through a list that they provide, some slight mod modification here, but for the most part, what's what they've offered, and I think it's so helpful, the gospel-centered life. This is what he says, number one, job righteousness. By the way, as we read through this, I think it'd be so helpful for you just to pray and ask the Spirit of God to reveal any wickedness, any, any idolatry, any false gospel that's even in your own heart. Matter of fact, let's pray now. God, a few things are more serious and more pressing than for us to nail this down this morning. Out of this flow all the issues of life in the church, our understanding and, and, and how we hold the gospel. So Spirit, we pray that you would shine the light that only you can shine in our hearts and as we read through this, that you would 
expose heresy, that you would expose self-righteousness, that you would expose wickedness within us. And we would be bold to, to, to repent of that and to trust the true gospel. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. And so job righteousness, we say things like this, I'm a hard worker, and so God will reward me. I'm a hard worker. This is, this is the thing that makes you proud. Maybe you don't say that you receive righteousness from God, but it's so important to you that people know that you are a hard worker. This is part of your identity. So you want people to know that. When they don't realize it, when they don't recognize that within you, you feel condemned. When you do sense that they see it, you feel self-righteousness. There's not just job righteousness, there's family righteousness. We, we, we treat it the same way. Because I do things right as a parent. Because my children obey better than this one. That I have righteousness. Because we can control our kids because we have kids. This can become a righteousness of our own, similar to that of circumcision. Again, when we experience it, it, it lifts us up to self-righteousness. When we are lacking it, we experience condemnation, which leads us to anger. We're so tempted to put job righteousness, family righteousness, not just on ourselves, but on those around us. Theological righteousness is another one. I have good theology. I'm solid in my understanding of the truths of Scripture, and God prefers me over those who have bad theology. This is another, this is another self-righteousness that we cling to. We, 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 we feel some sort of closeness to God. And preference over others because we have a greater understanding than some other. Similar and related is intellectual righteousness. I'm, I'm better read. I'm more articulate. I'm more cultural savvy than others. And obviously that makes me superior. We add that to our faith in Christ so often. First world, that's what we do. If you look at those around us, we have intellectual righteousness. Again, self-righteous when we experience it. And when we feel like we've not been understood to be intellectually righteous, we feel condemnation there. We hold that to ourselves. We hold these things to our children and then we press it against others. Schedule righteousness is another. I'm self-disciplined and rigorous in my time management, similar to how Jesus would have managed his schedule, which makes me more mature than others. And God is more pleased with me because I manage my schedule, because I manage my household, as it were. The opposite of that is flexibility righteousness. In a world that's busy, I'm flexible and relaxed. Again, similar to how Jesus would have been. I always make time for others and shame on those who don't. This is true Christianity. Either scheduled or flexible, both of those are oftentimes good things, but used for self-righteousness. Mercy righteousness. I care about the poor and disadvantaged the way that everyone else should. I'm a merciful person. Again, similar to Jesus. And so therefore, I am the preferred. And this is necessary. And you might say, well, I would never say that these things are true. I would never say in the presence of God that I am righteous because of this. I would always point to Christ. And yet on a daily basis, what do we do? We cling to mercy righteousness. We cling to legalistic righteousness. I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't chew, I don't date girls or guys who do. Say things like, many Christians just aren't concerned about holiness these days. 
And we add that to faith. As if God will impute some sort of additional righteousness to us and that missing piece that nobody else has, they just have faith. But I, I have holiness. Personal holiness. Again, self-righteous when it's experienced, when it's realized, condemnation when it's not. The anger within our own hearts and against others. Financial righteousness. I manage my money wisely and stay out of debt. Not like those who are foolish and materialistic. Political righteousness. If you really love God, you'll vote for my candidate. We add these things to right. They can't be a Christian. Do you know who they voted for? Are you serious? Tolerance righteousness. I'm open-minded and I'm charitable. There's ideas who don't agree with me even. And in fact, I'm most like Jesus. We say things like this in our hearts. And again, we're oftentimes never foolish enough to say that to God himself. If we were to say, well, what would you say before God? What would be your claim to righteousness? As you stand before God, you wouldn't be so foolish to claim these things. But yet on a daily basis, Christian, these things are in our hearts. And we cling to them. And we want people to know more about us, that we're tolerant, that we're politically savvy, that we're financially right, that we're legal, whatever. Unless that we have faith in Christ and by him we have received grace, in peace with God. So I ask you again, are you doing what the Galatians were doing? Are you guilty of that? Has the ground of your hope been shifting? As your righteousness, your self-righteousness waxes and wanes? Do you find yourself no longer looking exclusively to the Lord Jesus and his work on behalf of sinners Is your reliance for acceptance with God now being shared between the Savior and different kinds of works that you perform? If any of those things are true, then just like the Galatians, you need to pay urgent attention to the message of this letter. There's a warning that goes out to you as well. Your heart, it longs to contribute in a self-righteous way So often when you hit the mark, when you experience the tolerance righteousness or the financial righteousness or the the parental righteousness or whatever, you blend in. And nobody can tell. You can't even tell. I think one of the most helpful truths for you to know this morning as you consider your own heart is for me to ask the question, what makes you angry? What makes you most frustrated? What makes you most fearful? Is it related to any of these? Or is it some other? Somehow you feel that your hope is on shifting ground when one of these waxes or wanes? If that is true, then again, pay urgent attention to the message of this letter. There's no other gospel. There's no other good news aside from what Christ has done. Thune goes on to say, Does it send us to God with empty hands that we might receive salvation as a gift? Does it say to us that Christ by his life and death has done it all and that God requires nothing else? Does it forbid us to try to supplement with our own works the perfectly sufficient work of Christ? If it does not, 
if it insists that, as well as believing in Christ, we must work to obtain God's favor by things such as submission to ceremonies, obedience to the law, and doing good, then what we are hearing is in fact no gospel at all, but rather a perversion of the gospel, a reversal of the gospel, and it's no good news, it's bad news. So would that God reveal to us lest at the end of the day, we ourselves are accursed. That we also could have it said of us, Ananthema, that God's curse is upon us. Self-righteousness is believing that you are justified before God and that you have achieved it all by yourself. As I said, each of these sources of righteousness that we would add to Christ's righteousness that he imputes to us, they either elevate us or they thrash us to the ground. They either make much of us in a sinful, prideful way or they destroy us again in a sinful, prideful way that leads us to frustration and anger. Where this is most revealed in my own life is through this anger. What makes me angry? points to the fact that I believe that I, in some small way, have to contribute to the righteousness that Christ gives to me. And this is not the gospel. I'm thankful to God that by his grace he would continue to sanctify me and to draw me to himself. I pray that he would continue to do that for you this morning. Church, if you're a Christian, if you're here this morning and you are a Christian, you've repented of your sin placed your faith in Jesus and his work and are experiencing, believe the promise of the, of the grace of God and the peace of God is, is, is yours for the taking. And I ask you to consider what Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 3. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. And let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? If Christ has extended the hope of the gospel to you and you've received it by faith, why would you finish that with works of the flesh? It leads to damnation. It leads to emptiness. It leads to brokenness. So repent of that. And cling solely to the work of Christ. That's the good news. That's the good news. And if you're here this morning, and none of this is familiar to you. And all of it's new. The words of Christ in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, will apply to you as you have experienced this present evil age. And you know it all too well. And Jesus, to those who have experienced it, says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. This is the promise of God that we find in the gospel. We find true deliverance and rest for our souls. So church, if you, if you hear nothing else, take this warning this morning, that there is a constant tendency in all of us to distort the true gospel and when we do that we exchange the true good news for the own or uh, for the, for bad news 
may it not be said of us, not anymore. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you this morning that you have truly rescued us from heresy, from hopelessness, from false gospels, from our own misunderstandings and our own desires even. You've rescued us from that. You've called us out to something so much greater and fulfilling than what we experience in this present age. So Jesus, forgive us where we have left you, God, where we have deserted you in some small way. By your mercy, would you receive us this morning again? As we afresh grab on to the true gospel. God, for those this morning that are still wallowing in this present evil darkness and age, that by your grace that you would extend your hand, that you would grab them and draw them up from that miry clay and that you would set their feet on a rock. Out of the quick stand and on to the safety, that they would again afresh experience the grace and the peace that you deliver us to. God, this is your church. We are the the called out here and in this neighborhood for that you'd hold us fast, hold us to this gospel as we're prone to wander. We ask these things in desperation and in the name of Jesus. Amen.